Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Bailey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloop-Stay-Sequetman territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetman-Ulu. And today's text, The Sky is Everywhere, is set in the fictional town of Clover, California, but it was filmed in the northern Californian town of Eureka, which is the traditional home of the Wyatt peoples. So, Joe, mm-hmm. this is a book I have read before and taught before. Oh, Oh, see, I didn't know that, because I definitely thought this was just one where you saw the Apple TV movie had dropped, and you thought, yeah, sure, we can do that. No, I saw the Apple TV movie had dropped, and I got really excited, because I really Ah. like Jandy Nelson as a writer. Her second book is also really, really good. She mostly writes about, like, siblings, Ah. etc. Mm-hmm. So I was very gung-ho to revisit this book, and I, Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it just as much as I did the first time. I cried a lot. Oh. But I'm really excited to talk about the movie with you because right. I don't think the movie is altogether 100% successful, but I Mm-mm. do think like from a director's standpoint and like, uh, what's the word for how the movie looks? <laughs> the visual aesthetic? Yeah. From that perspective, I think it's one of the more ambitious films we've had on the show. I agree. And you had cued me to this in advance. So I was keeping an eye out. And then I realized, oh, it's so like hit you over the head, obviously. (laughs) This movie is doing some really ambitious things visually. I think it helps that the director, Josephine Decker, is actually known for her experimental films. So I think she's actually more of a quote unquote artiste than a lot of the more, dare I say, workmanlike directors that we sometimes see doing YA films. Well, and I think it's altogether a very interesting adaptation story because Jandy Nelson is the author of The Skies Everywhere. She has adapted the text. Yes. She's made a lot of decisions here in the adaptation. Mm-hmm. It is not a straightforward adaptation. And the changes that she's made, I don't know. Well, I'm excited to get into it all because I think that it's just a very different... I guess I was a little bit worried that I was throwing yet another realist YA at you. And instead, Mm -hmm. we've ended up with a very different kind of adaptation story that I think will make for an interesting conversation. But I should acknowledge the book did not work for you as well as it worked for me. (laughs) No, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording. This was a bit of a rush to the finish for me. So I barely had enough time to squeeze in the book and the film. So I don't think that helped my enjoyment. I found the book and the film to be just a little bit too long and drawn out for what at its base I think is a relatively simple story about a somewhat unlikable girl who is struggling with her grief Mm -hmm. and I don't dislike it but I can't say that it really grabbed me like I found Mm -hmm. my attention wandering quite frequently. I'm excited to talk about that unlikable narrator piece Um, but the first thing I want to do is go over the plot. Because you're right, it is pretty straightforward. Um, So (laughs) our 
Our protagonist is Lenny Walker. She's named after John Lennon. That's a whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. And she's a high school student. And when we meet her, she is in the throes of grief because yes. her sister has died suddenly from a heart arrhythmia that nobody saw coming in the book. Mm-hmm. They changed that in the movie. Anyway. Yep. And Lenny's very unconventional family is really thrown into, well, I think honestly, they're all depressed. They're all depressed in oh. different ways, but mm-hmm. they're all really struggling with depression. So Lenny lives with her grandmother and her uncle because her mother just took off when she was a little girl. And there's this through line in the book about like what it means to be left behind because mm-hmm. Lenny is left behind by her mother when she's very little and then again feels very much that Bailey has left her behind again. What happens over the course of the narrative really is that Lenny comes to understand things about her sister that she didn't know before. Mm -hmm. So she thought that she and her sister shared a dream that her sister would go to Juilliard to be an actress. But really, as the story unravels, it becomes clear that Lenny's the one who wants to go to Juilliard and like yeah. be a great artist. And really, her sister had much, much smaller dreams. It turns mm-hmm. out that her sister was secretly engaged to her boyfriend. She was secretly pregnant. And all of this that Lenny discovers sort of throws into question her very understanding of herself in the world. Yeah. Because she always defined herself not in opposition, but by comparison to her sister. Mm-hmm. Her sister was the bright, shining light. She was the center of attention. She was the outgoing one. And Lenny, I mean, I think at one point she describes herself as like the side pony. The companion pony. That's the companion metaphor that pony. keeps coming up. Because apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently racehorses have like a little buddy pony to keep them company. So cute. It's so what cute. an adorable idea. <laughs> <laughs> and Lenny does. She thinks of her sister as the racehorse and herself as the companion pony. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's a YA book about grief, there are some boys. Of course. There's so many boys that need so much kissing. <laughs> there, are, there are so much kissing in this book. There are two boys. There is Toby, who is the boyfriend of Bailey, the, the dead sister. And, <gasps> Scandalous. And Toby and Lenny really sort of throw themselves into each other in grief. Mm-hmm. In many ways, I think Toby sees Bailey in Lenny. And oh, by yeah, yeah. being with Toby, Lenny feels closer to Bailey. And so it's like emotionally very messed up but very fraught but so so believable like i could actually imagine people reading this and being very turned off by the idea like oh it's kind of incestuous it's so unconventional i actually found this to be the most interesting part of the book well and it's fascinating too because it is such a point of judgment of Mm -hmm. everybody else in the book (laughs) the way she reacts in her grief but yeah i agree with you it's completely believable one of the things that I like in the book from an emotional perspective is we get a lot of Lenny's sort of like just internal self-loathing about the choices that she's making. She's so mean to herself. She's so mean to herself. And you know, like she's feeling a very particular kind of grief. It's not just the loss of her sister. It's also the way a new grief makes an old grief really resonate again. And so she's also feeling the loss of her mother and like, Mm -hmm. The ways in which she feels like she is just destined to be left by people who she loves is, like, it's a very important recurrent theme in the book. Yes. But there's also a new boy. Mm -hmm. There's the lovely Joe Fontaine, who 
Lenny's whole family is obsessed with. The eyelashes. They're so long. <laughs> and Joe is a musical protege. He has trained in Paris. He has a tragic backstory with a cheating father and a and a ex-girlfriend who cheated on him. So he has all these feelings around faith and fidelity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Joe catches Lenny kissing Toby. Yeah. Kaboom! He's a bit of a manic pixie dream boy, isn't he? Just yes! like perfect in all regards. He's the savior who's going to lift her up. And you're just like, okay, Lenny, I think you're putting a little too much emphasis on this boy. And he's such a jerk about it, too. <laughs> like, I get his hurt feelings, but also like... Yeah, he really doesn't make any efforts to understand her grief. Like, I think initially when they first meet, he's that beacon of light because he doesn't treat her with kid gloves. He he doesn't treat her like she's going to break because he didn't know Bailey. So all he knows is Lenny, and he's fascinated by her. And we find out at the end of the book that there's a reason why he's so interested in her. But initially, that's the attraction, right? Is that he's gorgeous, he's new, and also he treats her like a real human being. And she wants to be better for him. Like she wants to come out of the grief because he reminds her how to live. Mm -hmm. But then he also never bothers to take any time to be like, so your dead sister, how is that going? (laughs) Well, that's a fascinating recurrent theme of the book really is like the selfishness of our emotions and like i what i think is interesting about this book is that it doesn't pass a value judgment about that it's Mm -mm. just is right yeah so like joe's sense of betrayal makes him selfish and incapable of like seeing lenny's grief as a whole picture of how she behaves Mm -hmm. lenny's grief makes it impossible for her to see either Graham's or her uncle's grief, right? And so she becomes so insulated. Toby's out of his mind with grief, and he makes all these terrible choices that have terrible consequences. And Uh you just see, like, the book isn't saying that any of these people are bad people, but it does allow them to behave in ways that are unlikable. Mm -hmm. Because anybody who has grieved knows that it's not pleasant or pretty, right? So to be clear, the reason that this book doesn't entirely work for me is because I got that almost immediately. <laughs> you didn't need 275 pages of it? <laughs> yeah. And and again, you know, I feel like we've been having more recurring conversations about how potentially because we've read so many of these texts or because mm-hmm. our adultness is creeping into our interpretations of the text sometimes things just aren't connecting with us or they're not resonating as strongly as if we were teenagers and we were reading this or Mm. experiencing it for the first time but yeah i just found that that was really obvious to me so then as much as i could appreciate oh wow the book is really letting these characters just revel in the messiness of their grief i also found that it started to become a little too repetitive to me Interesting. I think that I remain so surprised by Mm -hmm. the honesty of the conversation about grief in this book that I forgive it a lot, I suspect. Because things that made me impatient in the film, and as we'll talk about, the grief is quite a bit more muted in the film, Mm -hmm. don't bother me in the book. And I suspect that's part of why. Like, I think I am overly generous, perhaps, to the structural issues of the book, because, I don't know, you know, we've talked a lot about can you have an unlikable protagonist and mm-hmm. still 
enjoy the experience of reading. And we've right. talked about this particularly because you've challenged me on this with female protagonists in particular, right? Where I tend to, I tend to be turned off by unlikability um, pretty yeah. easily. Mm-hmm. But there's something I think about the, I don't know if it's the honesty of the grief here or just the rawness or the fact that I can, like Lenny's unlikability is really legible to me. Like I feel like mm-hmm. I've been Lenny, you know? And I wonder yeah. if that's why I'm more patient with the very, you're very correct to say, sort of repetitive structure and the, like, Lenny keeps making the same mistake over and over again. And I feel mm-hmm. like I've really criticized other books for that. <laughs> for some reason, it doesn't bother me here. And I'm not not really sure what the difference is, except that I think the characterization is very careful and well done here. Okay. Okay. I, I think the other piece is that we've only examined a couple of texts that really are concerned with grief. Like, more often than not, we're talking about romances, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about uh, even things like depression. And obviously, grief and depression are sort of sisters or, or kin to one another here. But I would say the grief buys this book a lot of goodwill because yeah. grief does make people so freaking messy. Mm-hmm. Like people will do inexcusable things when they are grieving. And it's harder to explain away bad behavior when people are just in love or when they're like, yeah, you know, I have undiagnosed something, something. And you're kind of mm-hmm. like, okay, but people should know that. And that doesn't excuse your behavior. It mm-hmm. maybe explains part of it, but it doesn't excuse it. Whereas with grief, it's like, I just don't think you were in your G damn mind. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that it's almost refreshing to have like a reason for the bad behavior in Mm -hmm. an unlikable character like it's yeah as i as i described it like it's legible but i also think that one of the more interesting characters to me in this book and i don't think she gets enough time is lenny's best friend uh sarah yeah thank you yeah i was gonna say she's like i can't remember her name because one of the things that sarah tries to do sarah's been trying to get into lenny's world of grief Right. Mm. Sarah is another example of where Lenny's selfishness has a real cost. Yeah. Sarah is another person who Lenny can't even see that she is also grieving. Mm -hmm. And Sarah tries to, she tells Lenny at the beginning of the book, like, she's basically not texted or called or or seen her friend since Bailey's death. Yeah. And when they do reunite at school, Sarah's like, you have a free pass whatever happened happened like you're still my friend i'm here for you and then as the novel progresses and lenny doesn't like become a better friend yeah she doesn't open up at all that free pass starts to disappear right and eventually Mm -hmm. sarah actually expresses like her hurt and her anger and i think that that's a really interesting character arc that i don't know that i've seen before and i really appreciate it because being on the outside of a grief which sarah isn't really she was her friend too, but being on the outside of a grief is a very strange place to be. And it's mm-hmm. emotionally weird. And I think it's especially emotionally weird when you're a teenager. Yeah. I mean, not having had the experience myself, it's interesting to read this because it's almost easier to empathize with Sarah because, mm-hmm. like, we all know people who have gone through difficult or challenging things and 
you're looking at them thinking, okay, how can I help you? How can I be there for you? Because I am your friend, I care about you. And trying to crack through that veneer is really Mm -hmm. difficult. So I think Sarah, in some ways, is almost the most relatable character, Mm -hmm. because we're far more likely to have had her experience than we have, say, Lenny's. Agreed. Yeah, I like Sarah. I feel like even in the book, I don't quite have enough of her to understand who she is as a character she is the best friend who has been left out in the cold but i mean one of the things that struck me so strongly as we get towards the end because i feel like the payoff of this book is really good like all of the relationships that lenny has been withholding there's so much catharsis when like Mm -hmm. graham snaps at her when she and big reconnect when she and sarah figure their stuff out all of that is really satisfying it just takes a long time to get to (laughs) yeah it does but like i love i love it when sarah sends lenny a text message that says sending out a search party for our friendship because i was like i cried that that, (laughs) like that gets you it gets you right in the feels right Yeah, because you're totally right that everybody's been there. And I think I agree on the sort of underuse of Sarah. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that Jandy Nelson has kind of written herself into a corner in some ways with the structure of the book because Mm -hmm. she's very focused on the insularity of the grief that Lenny's experiencing and the ways in which that impacts other people. But as a result, we end up spending so much time with Lenny and there are other stories here that are interesting right like I would love to know more of how I would love to know more about Sarah and Bailey's relationship and like what she's feeling and I would I'm actually very curious about Toby's interiority and like what's going Mm -hmm. on there and I want to know more about Joe's family but Lenny is so She's all consumed by her own grief that she (laughs) never asks any of those questions and so as readers living inside her head we never get to know those answers either Yeah, I'll I'll confess that the longer we do the podcast, one of the things that I'm beginning to struggle increasingly more with is the limitations of first person narrators. I think sometimes it can be like it can really pay things off. And I'm thinking more in like a mystery thriller kind of situation Mm -hmm. where it's important that certain information gets withheld, or we don't know if we can trust the person whose voice we're hearing and so on. But in stuff like this, I mean, I can understand completely why the decision was made to focus exclusively on Lenny's perspective. But yeah, it it just really reinforces, oh, there are other interesting avenues I would have loved to have unpacked. And we just, we don't have the time or the energy because it has to be Lenny all the time. Yeah, and it's interesting. I am increasingly finding, I mean, it's obviously not a total truth that like, YA is first person and adult Mm -hmm. fiction is third person. There's obviously lots of examples of first person adult fiction and third person YA. But I do find that when I'm not reading for the podcast and I'm reaching for um, adult fiction. Something else. Yeah. I'm always looking for third person narrators. You're like, I just need a break from the first person. (laughs) (laughs) And it's weird because my, my favorite genres to read outside of YA are typically like nonfiction memoir and Mm. literary fiction. And I'm finding that even nonfiction memoir, I'm like, I just don't need to be in anyone else's head. Like, I just want someone to tell me a story. Or at least not exclusively, right? Like, I think that's my thing. I could do with first person narrator. But yeah, how interesting would it have been to have gotten a chapter from Sarah or mm-hmm. a chapter from Toby. Or Graham. <gasps> Graham chapter. 
right? I mean, <laughs> I, I think you and I are probably in agreement that Big and Graham are sort of the most interesting characters yes. because they are so unique and kind of oddballs. Like, this this is a very fantastical realist YA, even before we get to the movie, because we're talking about flowers that make people fall in love and uh, pyramids that maybe are going to bring bugs back to life and a plant that mirrors the emotional well-being of our main character. Like, these are really fantastical story elements, Mm -hmm. and yet it's so much wah-wah from Lenny that we can't really (laughs) marvel in the marvelous world that we're meant to be living in. Yeah, it's true. So it's important to kind of know for context that Graham and Big are kind of like old hippies living in Northern Mm -hmm. California. And Graham's an artist and Big is a stoner. Mm -hmm. And the world that they've created and that they've raised Lenny in is one of one where magic is very much on the surface, right? Oh, so yeah. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned all those examples. I love the metaphor of the dying plant. At the beginning of the book, we meet this dying plant that is, and and it's not even a metaphor because Big's no. like, oh yeah, that's Lenny. <laughs> that's like, Lenny. <laughs> and look, it's dying. We don't know what to do. It's like everything we do, it, it doesn't get any better. And of course, there's this <laughs> moment of catharsis when Lenny destroys the plant. Yeah, I love that it doesn't heal. That was, I, yes. I was like, I'm going to burn this book if that plant just <laughs> miraculously heals. So to end the book with her throwing it off a cliff was like, yes, okay. Thank you, Jandy. Thank you. <laughs> it's such a good moment. And it's such a good moment for Lenny because, of course, the character arc for Lenny here is not simply one of grief. It's also one of like... It's not that she finds out how to live again. It's that she finds out how to live for the first time, right? Yeah. Who is she? What does she actually want to do? She's accepted these narratives of herself as the little girl whose mother left and the little sister to the magical, impulsive, amazing Bailey. Mm -hmm. And so to actually just be like, actually, you know what? I'm writing my own story and I'm throwing this plant off a cliff. It's so good. It's so much more satisfying than in the movie where she just throws it at the door. Yeah. Although we should clarify, she's not really writing her own story. I mean, I know you said that as uh, an expression, but she's writing it in poetry. And then she's also playing the clarinet. And she's also doing everything like. So one of the other struggles that I had with this book is that there are so many ideas ideas at play here. Like there's a lot of characters and there's a lot of things going on. Sometimes I think to the novel's detriment because it feels like we're throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And there were times where I was like, I understand people can be poets and they can also be musical protégés, but you know, her writing poems, and we have to read the poems because they're all included in the book at various stages. And we find out that one of the reasons that Joe was attracted to her is because he finds these scraps of poetry littered around the town. And you're like, oh, there's another metaphor. <laughs> and also the fact that she can't play her clarinet since Bailey died and yeah. she doesn't want to. And that's another sort of metaphor. And you're just like, okay, well, we're, we're really just doing a bit too much. Yeah, I think that that's a fair criticism. It's an interesting story with the poetry because... The poetry isn't good. I really think it's important to know that. (laughs) I'm so happy you said that. I found it insufferable. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's teenage girl poetry. And in, on the one hand, I want to say to J.D. Nelson, like, you nailed the voice of teenage girl poetry. Like, But also, she's a former poet. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Like, I didn't know that it was meant to be bad. So I just thought, because originally she was going to write the book in verse. Yes. And then she found it didn't work. So she wrote it like a traditional first person narrator. And I was like, oh, I don't know anything about you, but oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it is it's not good poetry it's overwrought it's just a lot it reads lot. like kind of poetry a sad teenage girl writes um and yeah. so on the one hand i think the voice is nailed on the other hand there's a lot of it oh. and you're right that there's a lot going on with lenny in the fact that she is this you know sort of magical poetess and also mm -hmm. this clarinet prodigy but one of the things that i think is interesting about that is Lenny is a manic pixie dream girl who has no idea that she is one. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't so, thought of it that way. <laughs> if you look at her from Joe's perspective, she's like this girl who he's heard everything about how talented she is at music, but he's never heard her play. Mm -hmm. And he walks around the town and finds scraps of her handwriting and puts together this poetry journal that he can then present to her at the end. Like if this story mm -hmm. was from Joe's perspective, mm -hmm. she's absolutely his manic pixie dream girl. She would be star girl. And she has no idea. And I kind of love that. Yeah, I mean, again, I almost wonder, would that have been an interesting avenue to, to unpack? Maybe it's that there's so much in here that I find some of the other opportunities would have been more tantalizing mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I found the story of grief well effectively done, just too samey samey. And mm -hmm. as a result, I thought, uh, like, maybe that's where my mind started to wonder, like, oh, what is this person's perspective? Or what does that person's story look like? if we were actually getting to see it play out. Yeah, I think that that is very fair. I think that all of the reservations that you've raised about the book are very fair. And also, I cried like every 10 minutes reading it, and it really works yeah. for me. <laughs> okay, so let's maybe unpack that and then transition over to the film. But I'm, so I'm obviously dead inside, and I feel nothing <laughs> at all. But I'm wondering... What is it about this that causes you to cry? Is it the story or is it the tone? Is it the mm. characterization? A mix of all three? I'm a sucker for sibling stories in general. So okay. I think that that's part of it. I also, you know, listeners know that I've been having a time. And mm -hmm. I think that, um, I think that in particular, there's a thing that happens in grief, which is that you think horrible things. <laughs> Right? Mm -hmm. Because like you can't, you're actually not in control of your lizard brain. And I think it's really no. important to always remember that, that like you're responsible for your actions. You're not actually responsible for your lizard brain thoughts. Right. And so, you know, there's this, like, you know, I've been dealing with pregnancy loss and like our neighbor brought home a baby and like, oh, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like plotting to steal the baby or anything, but like, <laughs> it's not the hand that rocks the cradle or anything, <laughs> but I definitely do have like, well, that is unfair. Like that is, right. it's not unfair, actually. It's no, just a different you. person's life, yeah. but there are moments when that feels really unfair. And so there's this scene, one of the scenes that makes me really cry and it's kind of a nothing scene is when Joe Fontaine and his brothers are over helping move furniture mm -hmm. and Lenny's like, you never knew oh. her. And Joe's mm. like, yep. And she's like, and you have a brother. And he's like, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, where are you going with this? And to her, it's like, how are you not seeing this? How are you not it's seeing so this? unfair. And that emotional disconnect when you're sort of living through something that nobody else can really 
connect to or touch. I think for me, there are just it's not even like I have like a big cathartic cry while I read this book, but like mm-hmm. I well up over and over and over again okay. at these little tiny moments. And I think right. I think that's why the book gets me because it's a vision of grief that is very willing to recognize like how gross grief can be mm-hmm. and how like we are both not ourselves and also unfortunately like the truest representation of ourselves in these moments. And I think it just, yeah, it's it's just like, it's a uh, this book is very emotionally on the surface for me. Right. And I think one of the things that you sort of touched on here is that Jenny Nelson is a very astute observer of these small, intricate details that feel mm-hmm. incredibly authentic, right? Like, very emotionally resonant, even if it's not like a sort of like grand swelling gesture, little things can be quietly devastating. Yes. Yes, that's exactly it. Yes. She was a literary agent before she was an author. Or maybe she's still a literary agent. I don't actually know. But it was a big deal when I was writing for Book Riot when this book came out. And it was very much like, oh, my gosh, people making the jump from... Right. One side to the other. Yeah, exactly. But I think that you can really see the attention to exactly that. Like, the little things that resonate with different audiences i feel Mm -hmm. like she's very gifted at that and i suspect that that's where that comes from interesting yeah huh it's a theory i like it (laughs) all right uh how about we switch over to the film yes please there were once two sisters the older sister walked ahead of the younger one so the younger one always knew where to go how are you doing because your grandma and I have been a little worried about you. My sister is dead. There's no more music in me. No more dreams in me. I've lost the one person on earth who understood me. How is school? Bad as expected. There's a new boy in honor band. Hey, you must be Lennon Walker. Toby stopped by. Go keep him company, make him feel welcome. He is not interested in talking to me. She was the love of his life. No one at school gets it. I don't think it's possible to get it. Unless you're in it, like we are. Um, you believe in signs from the beyond? I believe in everything. Because you've got me. Yes, by the way. The heart breaks. Music escapes. That's how it gets out. If the tide takes California, I'm so glad I got Joe Fontaine, Toby Shaw. I know I shouldn't have come. Oh, I just miss her so much. We're here without her. <laughs> Toby, I can't. Okay. 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 <laughs> We're going to be okay. Okay. So the film is actually from earlier this year, 2022. It is directed by Josephine Decker, as I said, experimental filmmaker. Uh, She's kind of been creeping into the mainstream. She directed Shirley, which is the biopic of Shirley Jackson starring Elizabeth Moss a couple years ago. And that was really well received by critics. Uh, I don't think it made a huge splash with audiences because it didn't get a huge uh, release. Mm. But uh, yeah, so Jandy Nelson is adapting her own book. And then we have 
sort of newcomer Grace Kaufman as Lenny. We have Jason Siegel as Big, her uncle. Cherry Jones as Graham. Fantastic. <laughs> we have uh, Jack Coleman as Joe Fontaine. Jin Yoon Yu as Sarah. And then Havana Rose Liu as Bailey. And Pico Alexander as Toby. And... I want you to start this off because you <laughs> set this up as Jenny Nelson makes some really interesting adaptation choices. And I'll confess that on the surface, apart from the visual style that Josephine Decker brings, I found this relatively straightforward. So what do you think are the big changes? See, I think there's a really significant muting of the trauma in the way the story is told here. So okay. there's two really important changes, I think, that change, for me, the vibe of Lenny's whole experience. So one is that her mom is not missing. Her mom is right, dead. she's dead. Yes. Which is like classic YA. And the second thing is that Bailey doesn't surprisingly die suddenly. Bailey's had a heart condition forever. And... Like, it's still sad. Like Nobody's like, oh, obviously mm -hmm. she was going to die. But there's much more context around the death. There's much more explanation for it. And it creates this whole sub-narrative where Lenny feels like Graham didn't get her the medical treatment she needed, and she didn't see enough specialists, and they didn't try hard enough. And so there's this whole mm. blame line that there's no blame for Graham in the book. There's a cutting out of no. Graham, but there's no blame. And so right. I think that both of those choices make the grief much more straightforward. It's a lot mm -hmm. less, there's a lot less ambiguity. And there's a lot less of a sense that Lenny is sort of destined to be forever left or forever abandoned. Um, right. And it's a much more straightforward story of like, my sister is dead, and I'm sad. Which isn't a bad thing. And I think the film, I think in general, the film is very interested in amping up the magic of the world and making it mm -hmm. this sort of incredible visual experience and it's much yeah. less interested in the emotional resonance i almost wonder if it's because spending an hour and 40 minutes in the level of grief that we see in the book it would, would be a lot be, <laughs> it would just be so challenging right yeah. like mm -hmm. it, it was interesting i read an interview with josephine decker for playlist and she was talking about one of the reasons she opted to take this film is because she was looking for something a little bit lighter than her <laughs> usual fare and oh, i thought wow. what an interesting choice of words because i'm sure to her that's very true but in terms of a lot of the YA texts that we've read, this is pretty dark and this mm -hmm. is pretty uncomfortable slash upsetting, like mm -hmm. this this particular story. Yeah, I agree. I think that I don't want to say it's a misunderstanding because Jandy Nelson wrote both texts, so it feels pretty mm -hmm. presumptuous to say that it's a misunderstanding. But I think it is it is obviously a concrete choice to make the story lighter. Um mm -hmm. and I missed it. Um, yeah. I don't think I would have noticed if I hadn't read the book. You know, it's one of those one of those things. But yeah. but I do think, you know, something that I read over and over again in the reviews for this, which are fairly middling, mm -hmm. is that the film itself is beautiful and there's lots about it that's really fun to watch, but it maybe thinks it's more profound than it is, or there's no yeah. sort of emotional heart at the core of the film. And I no. I would have to agree with that. Yeah, me too. I think I texted you about midway through the film and so as I said off the top, you had messaged me to indicate, hey, the film is doing some really interesting things visually, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But I texted you halfway through, and I was like, 
I maybe didn't say it, but I think Grace Kaufman <laughs> is doing a really good job with a challenging character because Lenny is almost more obtuse mm-hmm. and difficult to crack in the film. Like mm-hmm. she's behaving somewhat erratically, but even though we're getting occasional snippets of voiceover, we don't really feel like we know too much. Like she's keeping us out and mm-hmm. at arm's length as well. But she has no chemistry with Joe or Toby. No. So the whole foundation of the text is, yes, it's steeped in grief, but it's meant to be that she's finding she's finding a renewal or she's finding life and light at the end of the tunnel because she's feeling a sexual urge. Like yeah. she's driven to kiss these boys. And so much of the film is dedicated to that. And I was like, no, I feel nothing (laughs) in either of these relationships. It's such a shame, too, because Jacques Coleman could not be more adorable. Like, I really think he's very extremely cute as Joe Fontaine. I think he really sells that sort of charming, magical music boy vibe that comes from the Mm. book. But yeah, together, there's not a lot. (laughs) What's funny is that Joe and Graham have a lot of chemistry in the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that's not <laughs> untrue. I think that Lenny actually has better chemistry with Tyler Lofton as Marcus, who is uh, Joe's older brother. Yeah, and I agree. I was almost like, oh, I kind of wish he had been cast as Joe instead. They're also very good brother casting because there are moments mm-hmm. when only one of them is on screen when I'm like, oh, God, they look alike. That... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, are they meant to be twins is that the same actor maybe it's our facial blindness i don't know maybe we're racist i don't know well you know speaking of which joe can we talk a little bit about what's clearly an effort to do a race blind casting of this film oh boy yeah we're inclusion flipping all over the place here we really are and it's interesting because the film gives us very little background about lenny's mom and Mm -hmm. we just know she's dead and we know nothing about about Lenny's dad. In the book, it's made clear that Bailey and Lenny have different dads. That's clear in the book. It's never explicitly said in the film. So you actually end up with this really interesting situation. How are all these people related? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because we got Jason Siegel, who's like the whitest looking, hot smoking (laughs) dude. We've got Graham, who is Cherry Jones, who is, you know, beloved queer icon. And then we've got, yeah, like two women of color, seemingly from different backgrounds, who mm-hmm. are playing sisters. And you're just like, adoption? <laughs> and it's interesting that the film is uh, not at all interested in giving us any context clues for any of it. And it's kind of yeah. like, I'm I'm sort of interested in this as a... On a certain level, if casting is going to be totally race blind, then it's going, we're going to have to just be like, well, I don't get the backstory on this family and that's fine. And so I was kind of like digging it, but also kind of like, I really do want to know. But you're not going to give us anything? (laughs) Yeah. We're in that nebulous zone, right? Where it's still like, I I hit play and I just thought, oh, oh, okay, cool. Like, (laughs) you know, I'm fine with it, but also, yeah. It's still such a novelty that I kept waiting to see if they were going to explain it. And at a certain point, you're just like, nope, shut up. Just go with it. Because <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Exactly. It's so true. It's so true. And it's it's fascinating because I don't think I've ever seen such... Um, I think this is the clearest example of just choosing 
to, yeah, not explain it to the audience, asking the audience to Mm -hmm. buy in. And part of the deal with the film in general is that there's a much higher um, suspension of disbelief in the visual world of the film anyway. So it's kind of like you're just along for the ride. But yeah, I did. My the back of my brain was still like, okay, but is big their uncle? Or... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of Jason Siegel in this role? By the way, Uh I mean, I I think he's fine. I don't think that Big has a ton to do. I, I, you know, to me, this is a very clear example of what you and I have often struggled with, which is a bit of a flattening or shallowing out of these characters. So there's not a great deal of depth or nuance to anybody like Mm -hmm. we get a lot of Lenny but as I said because of the way her character is constructed we we are being held at arm's length from her and then everybody else is kind of like Joe's the cute new boy yeah and Rachel (laughs) is the b-word and Jason Siegel smokes pot and you're just like (laughs) they they don't really have any interiority and I think sometimes that's a shame because I like a lot of these actors and it just doesn't feel like we have a lot for them to do. Yeah, I felt that especially with Graham. It takes a long time to get to any kind of emotional reveal with Graham. And as mm-hmm. a result, Cherry Jones spends the first half of the movie just honestly kind of seeming like a jerk, right? Like she just keeps saying, pack yeah. up your sister's things, like pack them up, let's go. Like She's trying to move mm-hmm. her out or something. And if you don't have the context of the book, I wonder if that feels even pushier. Oh, I don't think this character makes any sense if you haven't read the book because Graham is a painter because everybody in this world is an artist. So she has a kind of side house. It's absolutely Mm. gorgeous. House porn for days in this movie. Absolutely. And so she's surrounded by all of these plants because she's a gardener as well as a painter. And in the book, the kind of running joke is that she only paints green women. Mm. Like, I think the book is actually really interested in place and environment Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how that affects your mood. And like, that's how we end up getting the metaphor for the roses being an aphrodisiac and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But in the film, Graham just paints green women. And you're like, (laughs) that's weird. Why does she do that? What's she doing with all these paintings? No idea. I don't get it. Well, and then when they stabbed that painting, I didn't Mm -hmm. remember if that was supposed to be the painting of the mom or not. See, in the book, there's this big emotional cathartic scene around this painting of Lenny's Mm -hmm. mother. Because Graham has always believed that one day their mother would come back, but also she told the mother not to come back. So there's this Mm -hmm. huge tension in Graham around the figure of Lenny's mother. Right. And and there's this whole emotional cathartic scene around that painting. And in the mm-hmm. film version, it's just like they grab a random painting off the wall and start stabbing it. And it's like, is that the mom? What's happening? I think it's supposed to be Bailey. Is that Bailey? I think so. That's because even it weirder. Looks like Rose Liu. That's even weirder. It's very odd. Why are they yeah. stabbing Bailey? Joe! I think, I think unless I'm, I might be misremembering, because there's definitely a painting of Bailey in The one there. in the room, right? In the bedroom yeah. is Bailey. Yeah, which that took me a while, because I assumed it was the mother, like it is in the book, for like the mm-hmm. first third mm-hmm. of the film. <laughs> again, don't know how yeah. these people are related or why they look the way they do, and it's fine. It's fine. I'm yeah, fine it's with fine. it. It's fine. It's fine. We're totally fine. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, so you did mention the visual aesthetic. We talked about it yes. a couple of times. Let's talk about which ones we like, if there's any that we don't like. Because I have one where I'm like, I admire it, but I don't think it works. Is it the flying people? 
No, it's the people in the Rose Garden. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because Lenny is often walking through places where Bailey has been and imagining Mm -hmm. Bailey's impact on the people around her. Yes. Who are always happy, like they're in a musical when Bailey's around. And then imagining what it's like when Lenny is the only one around. And Mm -hmm. the whole visual palette changes. Like, There's one moment in that scene where like a mom is kicking her child in the background of that scene yes i'm serious yes it starts with like an argument and then the mom starts kicking the kid in the background and it was like so distracting (laughs) it's jarring and it's one of those things where it's like it's pretty clearly it's decker's way of showing us the kind of self-loathing that lenny has Mm -hmm. for herself that we get from the book Mm -hmm. and there's moments where it really works and then there's moments where it's just a lot and i think that if you can just give yourself over to the visuals of the film it's probably more successful because if you're trying to link it to any kind of like emotional underpinning you're gonna be looking for a while yeah it it almost feels more like a creative exercise for her Mm -hmm. as a stylist like we've seen some flights of fancy and yes i'm realizing i say that even as we watch characters float up into the sky in this movie (laughs) literally It feels more like, okay, I took on this really conventional story or what she perceives as a conventional story, and she wanted to see if she could infuse her own style into it. So in this playlist interview that I read with her, she basically talks about in the script, it would basically just be written, Bailey walks down the street and people like stare at her or smile at her and she was like well wouldn't it be more interesting if we like zhuzh that up a little bit right so that's where we get scenes of bailey dancing and it becomes a musical and i thought that that was effective Mm -hmm. it's when we start to move into more extreme forms of like experimental art where you're like oh i could actually see this being a performance piece so like there's one moment where joe and lenny are listening to music among the roses and the roses start to move. And it's actually people wearing suits with roses on them that are like moving around. And I was like, it's really interesting visually, but it's so distracting from what it's meant to accomplish narratively and for what the characters are experiencing. Like, all I could do was look at the people and be like, ooh, this is a really interesting creative decision. It took me completely out of the film. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with that completely. I wanted it to resonate more with the stories mm-hmm. and instead it yeah i just found myself thinking about the filmmaking a lot right mm-hmm. yeah there's a moment where joe and lenny are on like a boardwalk and they're listening to music and they're having this shared euphoric experience and they start to float up into the air and people turn and look at them and smile and i thought you know what i think that's the happy medium that i would have preferred like i appreciate that Josephine Decker took this on and wanted to infuse more of that visual style in, but I think it often compromises what Jandy Nelson is trying to do. Like, Mm -hmm. they feel like they're working at odds. And that scene in particular to me was the one where it felt more like a marriage between the two artists. Yeah, I agree. I would would agree with all of what you just said. Cool, because that means I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Or we're both wrong. Both things have happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think overall, 
the movie just feels a little bit too long, mm-hmm. especially when we've taken out some of the things that, as you described, are just that much more meaningful and impactful. Like, we're still hitting a lot of these lines of dialogue. We're still following a lot of the situations. It just, at the end of the movie, I didn't feel anything. No. Like, the movie was over and I had watched it and I could rank it on letterbox and then I feel like I'm probably just going to forget about it and that yeah. made me sad. Yeah, it's I think it's especially unfortunate because one of the things that we have asked for repeatedly on the show is for you know more more play, daring, more risk more daring, more more even just more visual sensibility like we've talked so many times about films that are just so like mm-hmm. straight on. And so when the film started, I think that's when I first texted you. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Something different. Something different. There's definitely ambition here. And there is definitely ambition here. But yeah, I think it's the combination of the scaled back emotional world and the almost top heavy visuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A little unfortunate. It's weird that we've asked for it. And now it feels like it just (laughs) went the wrong way. Yeah. That makes sense. Do it again, <laughs> but better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, okay, well, shall we play a little bit of YA bingo with this? Let's do it. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, the sky is everywhere. What have you got? Okay, so I obviously am going to pick Inclusion Flip. Yes. Dead Body, Dead Family. Uh-huh. And... Definitely house porn, to agree with you from earlier. Uh-huh. I'm going to give one to Magic Supernatural, which yes. honestly, I didn't get until I watched the film. I have to give the film credit mm. for that. Like, it's okay. not like I was like, oh, yeah, no, these are clearly straightforward magical roses or whatever, but I didn't <laughs> yeah. I didn't put the same resonance on them before I had watched the film version. So right. I will give Decker credit for that. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. I'm going to say perfect date because Mm -hmm. um, I think mostly the hotel bedroom in the woods. Yes. And I was actually so disappointed that we don't get that in the film. I was like, of all the scenes, of all the scenes, this is the one (laughs) that would have worked the best for what you're trying to accomplish visually. And yet it doesn't appear. So, but you know what? I'm almost happy because it means I get to keep what I envisioned in my mind. Agreed. I was gonna say stunt casting for Cherry Jones and Jason Siegel, but I don't know if they're famous enough for that. I definitely thought that Jason Siegel was a stunt cast, especially with how little he gets used in the film. Fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think the casting of Graham is almost unfortunate because I just wanted so much more Graham as a result. Yeah, it, it's one of those situations where you think, why would you waste this actor on a nothing part? Like, all you're doing is setting your audience up for fail because mm-hmm. we're going to be looking for him to do more because we recognize him. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to go for musicality because a yes. lot of those more ambitious sequences are set to music, but also we get musical numbers in this movie. We get full on musical numbers. And I also just want to say that this is a film that actually deals well with the issue of how do you show a protege on screen when the actress playing them is probably not a protege yeah go back and listen to our episode on if i stay if you want to hear brenna just absolutely rip into a text (laughs) um but it's it's true i think that what we get here is i mean it's partly helped by the fact that she is rediscovering her musical talent but Mm -hmm. the performances are very believable yes and it's yeah it's just very well done i think 
Yeah, although I would at this point like to put a moratorium on <laughs> people trying to get into Juilliard. I've... I can't make any promises. They keep showing up. <laughs> I'm kind of done with it. And also, if I worked at any other musical or creative school in the U.S., I would be like, there's more than just Juilliard. <laughs> I get it. It's a, it's a big deal to get into Juilliard. Um, so I have both a good friendship and... Yes hollow friendship romance agreed i i was gonna say i think they're good friendships and romances in the book and hollow in the film Mm, yeah yeah Yeah. it's unfortunate but um that's all that i have i also have montage we have lots of bailey montages in particular okay yeah Mm -hmm. and cgi for the flying around scenes okay interesting because i know for a fact that some of this was done practically like obviously the people in the rose bushes are actual people yeah i believe it was decker's ambition to try to not use a ton of cgi because that's what was written into the script by jandy nelson like she just figured they would do all of it on the computer and decker was like i don't do cgi a lot oh so they're so they're the, are they on harnesses in that i think they're scene? they're doing wire work yeah Oh, wow. Okay, well, I take back my CGI. Uh, Needless to say, even if we did include it, it would not give us a line. Boo! Jenny Nelson! (laughs) Boo! Uh, Yeah, it's just like a a smattering across the board, so. Yeah, that doesn't really surprise me. It isn't a very tropey film, or a book, really. Not really, no. No. Okay, Joe, you were worried that was going to be another negative episode, and look, it wasn't. There we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So where are we headed next? Okay. So uh, we have a mini-sode coming up. And Brenna, <laughs> we are very long overdue for some more Indigenous content. And lo and behold, I've managed to sneak in Indigenous queer content. So <laughs> we are going to be looking at a very recent new film called Wildhood. I'm very, very excited for this one. And I'm really looking forward to having a conversation about this film we're actually starting to have watched enough indigenous film that we can start to put them in conversation with each other so yeah and this one's canadian too i forgot to say that because this is from halifax oh exciting okay very cool and then our next full-length text is i'm so excited we're gonna check out ms marvel and the ms marvel adaptation on disney Mm -hmm. plus yeah Mm -hmm. at the time of this recording i have seen two episodes and honestly brenna you are going to die for this lead actress (laughs) who is playing miss marvel perfect literally perfect casting for this character kamala khan is one of my favorite people in the marvel universe and the original creator of the character g willow wilson one of my favorite comics writers so yeah i have high hopes and i'm very very excited um and then just to let people know who are reading ahead for book club we are doing cousins by virginia hamilton so Mm -hmm. make sure that you've got that on the on your radar and that you're uh you're working through it yeah plenty to to binge watch and i love the diversity like Queer Canadian Indigenous, um, secretly Canadian Indian superhero. The actress is Canadian, the <laughs> yes, character is. is not. Uh, yeah, and then uh, a little bit of familial people of color. Yeah. Club. Yeah. 
And from the classic era too, which is exciting because right. oftentimes when we look at classic YA texts, we're looking at texts by white writers, but mm -hmm. uh, Cousins by Virginia Hamilton is a, a key example of a, a really touchstone author for particularly black YA. So yeah. pretty excited for that. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us about any or all of that, you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSPod or at HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I uh, can be reached at B Stone My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. And if you've got something longer, like you want to submit a little bit for book club, you know we mm. love it. It's hkhspod at gmail.com. So, Joe, Ugh. thanks for doing this one with me. I know yeah. it was not 100% your cup of tea, but I think that there was quite a lot to talk about in the end. I will say I, I wasn't loving the experience of reading the book or watching the film, and I quite enjoyed our conversation. It helped me to not just uh, verbalize what I was struggling with, but also I feel like I came away with a greater appreciation. For Yay. The book. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. All right, folks. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye.